Due to the themes of this podcast, listener discretion is advised. Lock your doors, close the blinds, change your passwords. This is Secrets and Spies. Secrets and Spies is a podcast that dives into the world of espionage, terrorism, geopolitics, and intrigue. This podcast is produced and hosted by Chris Carr. On today's podcast, we're going to discuss Russia Today and conspiracy theories. I'm joined by Dr. Precious Chatterjee Doody, who co-authored a book with Dr. Ilya Yablokov, and the book is called Russia Today and Conspiracy Theories. If you're enjoying this podcast, you can support it in a few ways. First of all, please do leave a review on your podcast app. All reviews help us gain more listeners as it raises the awareness of the podcast. I don't know if you know, but all podcast apps are algorithm-based, and the more interaction the show gets, the more listeners it attracts. You can also become a friend of the podcast through Patreon. For £3 a month, you can become a Patreon subscriber and directly support the show. You'll get a free copy of my film, The Dry Cleaner. Also, you can join us on Twitter. You can directly interact with me by going to at Secrets and Spies. And lastly, you can watch my short spy film, The Dry Cleaner, which was my first attempt at original spy fiction. It's now available on Amazon Prime and Apple TV. It comes in, I think, around about $2.99. So, without further ado, let's get going. I hope you enjoy this episode. The opinions expressed by guests on Secrets and Spies do not necessarily represent those of the producers and sponsors of this podcast. Welcome, Doctor. How are you today? I'm fine, thank you, and glad to be speaking to you today. Yeah, it's great to speak to you too. So thank you for joining me. So my first question is, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself and your professional background? Sure. Um, Well, I'm a lecturer in politics and international studies at The Open University in the UK, um, and I specialise in Russia's external relations. So basically, I take a a keen focus on official representations Mm -hmm. of Russia in the international environment and how that impacts on global politics. Excellent. And, very, and I'm sure you must be a very sought after person these days. So. <laughs> it definitely comes in waves, I think. Mm, excellent. Excellent. So um, you've written this brilliant book about Russia today and conspiracy theories. So can you talk to us about sort of what inspired you to write this book that focuses on Russia today and conspiracy theories? Sure. Um, so a, a few years ago, I was involved in a, a big research project called Reframing Russia for the Global Media Sphere. Mm. And that was intended to address some of the assumptions about RT, Russia Today, and to check the evidence basis behind them, because there are a lot of um, kind of common allegations about RT, I would say, um, such as that it you know creates fake news, that it's propaganda, um, that it spreads conspiracy theories. But there wasn't a lot of evidence to actually back up those assumptions, and that's what the project sought to do. Mm. And, um, you know, to summarise a huge research project in one sentence is not very easy, but if our attempt were to attempt if I were to attempt to do that, I would say that what RT does is more complex than what is often assumed. It has some very good high quality um reporting, especially investigative reporting. Um, but it also mixes that with some, shall we say, um less desirable features of an international broadcaster. But rather than nowadays spreading, you know, clearly false stories, it does something a little bit more careful, um, which is that it kind of 
reports false stories. So often we'll report them factually, but in a way that spreads them to wider audiences. And one thing that has remained consistent really from the beginning of the network is this recurring engagement with conspiracy theories. Yeah. Just before the pandemic hit, I screen grabbed RT where they put coronavirus crisis. Should we be more skeptical? Uh, (laughs) They seem to sort of specialize in stuff like that, really, don't they? They absolutely do. And this is not by accident. Okay, Mm. so um, RT was created very much at a time when the Internet was expanding both in use Mm. and availability and when we essentially have like a flooded media environment. So it's completely saturated. You can choose to take news from wherever you want to um, and from whatever kind of source you want to. And stories spread very quickly, both via, mm. you know, standard online channels, but also social media where um, stories have sort of increased salience or believability if they're shared by people that you know and trust. And that's very much worked into what RT does. And it presents itself as being this alternative voice that gives you an option that you wouldn't necessarily get elsewhere. Uh, This idea that the mainstream media as a whole has an agenda, which RT books against. And it's kind of begun to create, I guess, a persona for itself, a brand for itself around this idea that it challenges the mainstream media and offers something that they simply can't, like an, an outsider voice a heroic truth teller that's not frightened by the establishment essentially yeah yeah and russia today sorry just being a bit silly maybe a silly question it's it's basically it's a state-run news organization isn't it which is sort of different from i don't know like cnn or fox news or something so it's state funded Mm. and it's it's kind of tricky really to establish the degree of involvement that the state has in the actual day-to-day running of the channel Mm. but in a way that doesn't matter quite so much so it is funded from the state budget it has a job to do Mm. um it appears that the you know the network itself has adequate um independence to cover what it covers in the way it wishes but of course there is a general framework that's kind of expected and that it doesn't tend to um diverge from too much now that's not always the case sometimes rt does quite surprising reporting but in general you know it is one feature of russia's overall um strategic apparatus that it can Mm. use to create a particular appearance of itself for international audiences some people like to compare it to like i've I've spoken to people privately about sort of rt and sort of you know try to explain to people how uh, it's a little bit iffy and then some people say well how is it different from the bbc so is there is there an answer about how how rt is different from the bbc yeah it's a great great question and yes there are some really important differences i guess the key amongst them is when you think about what it seeks to do mm. so um the bbc has um its brand is all associated with being a public service broadcaster. That's the idea is that it serves the public and that it has to create coverage with um, due impartiality. Um, and that's that's its goal. So if the BBC is being the best version of itself, that's what it's aiming for. Mm. If it's failing to be the best version of itself, that's the benchmark it's against. RT does not have the same goal. RT's goal is explicitly to provide a challenge to the mainstream and to give stories that aren't given elsewhere. And that, in a way, is a much lower bar because Mm. you can raise questions about established expertise, but you don't have to provide any answers whatsoever. So for RT to even be the best version of itself, to really fulfil its own stated goals and to do it well, 
it actually doesn't have to provide an impartial account. It doesn't have to provide um, a fully researched account even of some of the stories that it's doing because its goals are completely different. And that's that. even by doing that, it, it serves its own purpose and it does it well. So the bar is much, much lower and very different. Yeah, thank you for that. So um, can you talk to us about the history of conspiracy theories and how they're kind of linked with the evolution of communication technologies? I think it would be useful at this point for me to define what I'm talking about by conspiracy theories. Yeah, mm. I mean, often it's used as a slur, right? You know, people say things that they don't like are conspiracy theories. Uh, and I've had this often when I've published, you know, blog posts or, or accounts for the general public. Mm. Um, sometimes I get a bit of trolling. Well, what you're doing is peddling conspiracy theories yourself. So just to be really clear about what we mean about this in the book, we're using it in quite a technical sense. And a conspiracy theory is a theory a way of understanding the world, which rests on the assumption that a group of evil or nefarious elites are working together to undermine the interests of ordinary people. Now, a conspiracy theory might be true or it might be false. And that's kind of not the point, but it's a way of seeing the world in which there is that division between the people and the elite. So you can see it as almost like a, a populist um, vision of the yeah. world. And conspiracy theories are kind of intrinsic to the human condition in a way, and they've existed as long as politics has existed. Um, we can look as far back as ancient Athens, where conspiracy accusations were essentially used to control society by reminding people, uh, reminding citizens that they were accountable to um, the Republic. And they've kind of They've, they've played a, a role in politics, you know, all through history, and they've always been disseminated according to the technologies of the time. And that has meant that conspiracy theories in their type, in the way that they're disseminated, um, has very much interacted with that overall um, communications environment. So an example would be um, the Protocols of the Elders of Zion was a very famous hoax, which was perpetrated by um, Russian counterintelligence officers, essentially to give the impression that there was um, a conspiracy of Jewish elites aiming to take over political and financial institutions in the world. That was obviously began as a kind of paper-based um, conspiracy. If you look at more contemporary um, conspiracy theories, this, you know, they spread on our um, globally integrated a saturated online media environment, and they do so in real time, basically. So um, this, I guess, one of the most important features of this is that we have very low levels of trust in established institutions now, both within, in, in politics, in politicians, and in the media as well. So it creates almost a space where alternative voices can have increased credibility because they don't appear to represent those mistrusted institutions. Um, it's kind of like a perfect storm when you think about it, and it's mutually reinforcing as well, because the more conspiracy theories are reported and um, the greater number of conspiracy theories that are reported, it actually increases people's openness to believing conspiracy theories, and it also increases the credibility of the sources that are reporting them as being these lone voices that speak against the establishment. Yeah. Um, plus, you have a market rationale for this because when you think about, you know, clickbait, for example, you know, conspiracy theories sell. So we have this whole 
um, number of reasons why conspiracy theories now spread so much faster than ever before. Um, and, and it doesn't look like there's any chance of that going away anytime soon either. No, sad, sadly not. And it's it's interesting, like, talk about events. I mean, like, I don't know if you know this. Um, I was once a conspiracy theorist in my early 20s, and it was sort of around 9-11 and the Iraq War. I think the Iraq War was the trigger for me. Um and my sort of disbelief in it and so on. And it kind of turned into a sort of perfect storm for a few years, <laughs> embarrassingly so. And, um, you know, and now obviously we've had Brexit, um, the debates around Brexit and even the debates around the election of Donald Trump and his tenure as president. And also now I think in the UK in particular, there's a real, uh, and the US, there's a real sort of distrust of the police. Um, there's a lot of things kind of going on in the world at the moment that are the perfect place for conspiracy especially with distrust of authority and and so on and this sort of sense of um that the the one percenter having an amazing time whilst everybody else is not there's a real fertile ground right now for conspiracy theories isn't there i don't know if it's always been that way but it certainly feels particularly the place right now (laughs) yeah you're absolutely right and i think like i said at the beginning you know conspiracy theories can be true Mm. They can be false. They can be true. Um, but what they tend to be is based on nuggets of truth. So, and an RT is very good at doing this, is taking particular facts and then weaving together a narrative from those facts that doesn't necessarily follow. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, there are legitimate issues with the invasion of Iraq, for example, and they really did undermine um, trust in the establishment, and rightly so. But that then doesn't mean that because an establishment is capable of doing X, Y, and Z, that it therefore follows that there's a huge conspiracy that then means it's guilty of whatever the latest um, accusations are. And I think that's that's the difficulty there, isn't it? Because there is a certain plausibility to conspiracy theories. Actually, most people believe mm. in some conspiracy theory or another. That's why I think it doesn't make sense to, to kind of use the term as a slur. You know, it does mean a very particular thing to me. Um, and I think that's important for understanding their appeal with people who, you know, think genuinely deeply about things yeah definitely and you know like you were saying you mentioned the protocols the elders of zion at the beginning i mean that conspiracy theory is still believed in many sections of society obviously on the far right uh white supremacists and in the middle east as well with islamic extremists i mean i've encountered people on both sides of the spectrum in person and online who believe in a mass jewish conspiracy and they quote the protocols of zion as if it's this factual text i've had arguments with people about this i even tried to make a a failed doc documentary to go into the history of uh, of the protocols of zion and the interesting story of the russian secret police who who created that document it, it, it's amazing the sticking power of some conspiracy theories it really is i mean the, the key issue is how can you possibly dispel that because mm. you can use all the research you want from all of the trusted sources you want but if the sources aren't trusted by the people that you're aiming to dispel that narrative with then it's just actually does the opposite doesn't it it just gives you yeah gives them more evidence that actually this is a massive cover-up yeah what is it yeah this the problem is when you get in debates with quote-unquote conspiracy theorists like you could give them the facts but then they'll they'll come back with their version of facts as well and yeah. it just becomes my facts versus yours um it does it, never really it goes does, it does. <laughs> i think as well there's such a huge emotional element of this as well mm. isn't there you know it's mm. not just about facts it's about how those facts make you feel whether they feel like they're true or not and 
in a way, I think that's something we don't talk enough about because so there's this assumption that we can fact check everything and then it'll be fine. But, mm. you know, as you've just alluded to, that's not how it works. If someone has a vested interest in believing something, then they're kind of emotionally connected to that story. And it's very, very hard to 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 get beyond that i think yeah and we're very much seeing it at the moment with the coronavirus aren't we in the sort of vaccine debate you know most people don't think twice about getting a vaccine to go to a place with malaria but now covid's here some people are trying to turn it into um their religious right not to have the vaccine yeah it's amazing how these things suddenly become political when other things really just wouldn't have done and it's all to do with these emotional um resonances of the narratives about them i think Mm -hmm, definitely can you talk to us about sort of the kremlin strategy behind Russia Today, or RT as it's now known? RT was established right at the same sort of time that there was a lot of work going on within Russia to kind of shore up the ruling regime and to cement Russia's place in the world. This was, you know, after... Putin had been in power for quite some time, but his popularity wasn't totally stable. And there was this idea that they needed some kind of ideology building at home, basically. Mm. And so what ultimately happened, to cut a long story short, is that one of the key advisors, Vladislav Surkov, came up with the concept of sovereign democracy. This idea that, you know, Russia is a democracy of its own type that's best suited to its own um individual progression, its own development mm. as a nation, and that it has a very particular role to play in the world in which the West is not an enemy, but it is a competitor. Mm. And so that was kind of going on at home. The idea was that um, Putin was a man of the people who could best represent the interests of the Russian people, both at home and abroad. And this kind of expanded outwards into an idea of needing to um, project the nation abroad. And, and that was really the idea behind the foundation of what was then Russia Today in 2005. And it essentially started as very much a kind of soft power outlet in the traditional sense. So culturally focused, presenting um, a Russian perspective on the news and also uh, a vision of Russia for external audiences. Mm. Now, this quite quickly changed, um, particularly after the Georgian War of 2008. So this was something that was of really crucial um, national interest to Russia, but the whole of the rest of the world saw it in a totally different way. Um, for everywhere else, basically saw Russia as the aggressor in this. All of the media coverage painted Russia as the aggressor in this, mm -hmm. and that did not suit Russia's interests. And so RT was essentially used to give the alternative perspective, the idea that Russian peacekeepers were stepping in to stop a genocide. Mm. And RT really ran with that line. Um, taking its lead from Russian domestic television, which is, is a different beast, I say, because it's it is very much propagandistic Russian domestic state television. Yeah, yeah. Um, RT is less so, is much more nuanced, but it did take a lot of lines kind of reporting things that had been said on Russian domestic TV about that conflict. And in light of that, the, the whole network was basically rebranded. So the year after it was changed to just RT rather than yeah. Russia Today. And its reporting very much took on this kind of counter-mainstream angle, much more obviously. So it had this motto of question more. And as I alluded to earlier, that means that you can draw into question a lot of the existing accounts without necessarily having to provide a really coherent alternative, which kind of suits Russia's interests very well. So now RT has this kind of counter-mainstream voice 
Uh, it tends to focus on untold stories from the West, more so than stories about Russia. Um, presents itself as this lone voice of reason, this heroic truth teller that says what the mainstream networks are frightened to. And its reporting of Russia in particular tends to take a back seat and is then only focused when it's something clearly to do with Russia's um, national interests. Yeah, yeah. I mean, when I've tuned in, in the past, and it's been a few years now, I always remember RT had endless documentaries about America's failures in the Vietnam War or homeless problem in America or, or mm -hmm. any other social problem. And then yeah. juxtaposed with beautiful landscape shots of Russia and um, interviews with, I don't know, people who, who live in Siberia off the land or something like that. <laughs> yeah, so they still have a lot of these stories about um, the treatment of veterans in the US, mm. Europe's migration problem is another favoured theme mm. and, and that kind of thing. So anything where they can basically criticise what's going on in, in the West, especially the US, that's by far and away the biggest geographical topic of its coverage, and certainly in documentaries, is the US. Mm. Um, but that kind of – that's pretty true across all of its types of programming, I would say. Uh, yeah. It tends to then lampoon any of the kind of big – uh, European powers uh, a mm. lot in its coverage, um, and yeah, that the, the the coverage of Russia itself is if in news. It's only if it's national interest, and then otherwise you'll get the odd bit of kind of culturally focused programming. Yeah, but that's no longer the main main focus anymore. No, no, fair enough. Thank you for that. So, um, you have a fascinating chapter called "The World According to Truth Seekers," in which you discuss RTs actively courting and pushing conspiracy theories from 2013. You, in particular, focus on two RT shows, which is "The World According to Jesse Ventura" and "The Truth Seekers." Can you talk to us about what you discovered with those two shows? Sure. So, these two shows are really interesting in that mm. they were explicitly geared up. Or were and are um, in the latter in the latter case explicitly geared up to discuss conspiracy theories. Mm. Now, in the case of the Truth Seeker program, you know its very first episode was dedicated to nine eleven yeah. and to kind of dispelling the so called myths about nine eleven, and it goes into great detail about many of the conspiracy theories about it. Yeah. Um, interviews people who believe in those conspiracy theories or who, according to the program, can provide, you know, additional information that isn't being platformed on the mainstream. Yeah. Um, and throughout its time on the air, the the show basically painted the US as this nefarious, untrustworthy power, guilty of false flag operations, in which citizens' needs um, and rights were constantly being trampled by a kind mm -hmm. of military-industrial complex. And it's an interesting lesson i guess in how rt has adapted to its environment because quite early on um in 2014 it it aired a couple of episodes that were full on um you know they, they aired full-on conspiratorial allegations in particular mm. that um there was a chemical attack in syria staged um now in the uk the regulator ofcom uh came down on this pretty hard and ruled it to be a breach and it was interesting how this panned out because ultimately the sanctions weren't huge on RT at the time, partly because mm. it responded immediately to that, you know, a, a properly nuclear response. You could think about it as being yeah. because it pulled the show from the air, um, pulled it from the net. And, you know, that was the end of that, basically. So there was a, a clear kind of response there. Now, 
most lately, this uh, the show by Jesse Ventura. He's an interesting character who has been a governor in the US. He was a pro wrestler before that. And he also hosted a TV show on US cable TV called Conspiracy Theories. So mm. he's got his own audience, right? He brings yeah. some sort of credibility with him. And his show um, similarly has had... Um, you know, a lot of engagement with conspiracy theories, but it's mm. done it in a different way. So it will report them. It's given more as kind of opinion um, and allegations reported from specific figures as representatives of whatever organization. So in a way, there's like a layer of distance in how they're reported. Nonetheless, they're still reported. They're still platformed. They're still spread. Uh, but it's done in a much more savvy way, I would say. Um, and again, there's this really underlying theme that, you know, those in power in the US, the the military, media, industrial complex, which is insinuated to be all one thing, mm. is kind of working together, conspiring to ensure that citizens' rights are trampled upon in, in the interests of big business, basically. Yeah, yeah. And that particularly, there was a focus on sort of lobbyism around the Obama administration, wasn't there? Which led nicely into the sort of 2016 elections and so on. Yeah, some very interesting stuff. There. And you also mentioned sort of one of the way RT engages with booming conspiracy culture in the US is by strongly linking to this idea of a new world order. And I remember when chatting with someone about, about Trump, because one of the popular ideas with Trump supporters is he's somehow independent from Wall Street because he has his own money. And, and that somehow made him you know, uncompromised. And I always found that quite interesting. So this idea of the New World Order, and they really sort of pushed out an RT, don't they? Yeah, they absolutely do. And the New World Order is itself kind of a, a, a big old dog whistle. Um, mm. And RT is quite savvy at doing that as well, where you use something that's shorthands for something else. So New World Order, you don't then have to say all of the kind of anti-Semitic conspiracy theories but they're there in the background and the audience kind of knows it. Yeah, yeah. And some conspiracy theorists have turned the Jews into lizards or something else. Yeah. You know, they can, or just the elite, you know, that 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 sort of a blanket term these days that can mean many things. <laughs> and actually, there was one particularly uh, dodgy episode of one of RT's hmm. online um, sh video shorts where they'd pr presented uh, George Soros as a lizard, which had to be pulled really quickly um, when obviously there was a massive uproar mm. about it. Yeah, yeah. Actually, RT have a real do have a bit of a thing about George Soros, don't they? <laughs> yes, they really do. And again, like I said, it's it's what you say and it's what you don't say because you can yeah. you can say Soros and you don't have to say much more because those conspiracy mm. theories they have a life of their own and the audience mm. kind of gets what you're trying to say without you having mm. having necessarily to say it explicitly. Yeah. Do you think Russia being the birthplace of the Protocols of Zion, the fraud, and there's a lot of anti-Semitism in communist imagery, do you think the RT sort of position on people like George Soros on Jews is reflective of that kind of historical anti-Semitism within Russian society? I think that... Conspiracy theories themselves have mm. such a long pedigree and they have such a long kind of cycle that mm. it's difficult to get in into any conspiracy theories in depth without anti-Semitism coming up, mm. simply because mm. that's where the references are. So I don't necessarily think it's always... Um, you know, a deliberate choice mm. to paint it that way as an anti-Semitic anti worldview. But I think that conspiratorial stories almost inevitably, if you dig down deep enough, have an anti-Semitic mm. element simply because of the history. Yeah. So can you talk to us about how Russia was presented on the truth seekers and RT at large? Yeah, it's, it's funny. I guess in RT, certainly nowadays, mm. Russia is 
a kind of absent presence, if you see what I mean. Mm. Um, generally, it's not the focus. You know, we've, we've already discussed how nowadays it's the failures of the West and the US in particular that are Artie's main focus. Um, and for that reason, Russia's role really is just the external power that can shed light on this almost mm. like a morally independent arbiter of the world system. That's the kind of implication that they give um, that Russia is not part of this and that it's able to give this alternative perspective and shed light on this corruption. Yeah. Russia's an in- and Putin's an interesting figure because through other interviews, the picture I've come to learn, if I put it that way, is that Russia likes to present itself as many things to different audiences. But one of the things in particular, it seems to be trying to paint itself as the um, saviour of white Christian culture. And I don't know if you've had any sort of thoughts on, on, on that at all, if you've observed that at all in Russia today. Um, that view in particular is very much associated with the kind of Russian right wing, I suppose. Mm. Um, and RT does play to that at certain times. Um, I would say that there's a lot of content that's kind of angled towards this, you know, kind of contemporary young right, I suppose. Um, but it's not the only thing it does. So it does this amazing kind of balancing act of, mm. of creating that sort of com- content and then some really very left wing content as well. Um, and again, that fits very much with this kind of conspiratorial worldview because um a mistrust of the authorities um you know plays very well certainly on the left in terms of this mm, like this corruption mm. angle the idea that people are being um uh, ill done to by those in authority and and what i said earlier about conspiracy theories being like an inherently populist way of viewing the world we've seen the rise of populist movements on both left and right across europe and and the west more broadly and I think the way that RT kind of angles its content very much reflects that broader trend in global society today. Yeah. In 2017, the US intelligence services jointly agreed that Putin and the Russian government attempted to influence the 2016 US presidential elections. Can you talk to us about the role of RT in the Russian government's influence campaign? Sure. Now, this is a tricky one because mm. we know that the Russian government attempted to influence the elections. But it's very difficult to assess the extent to which they did or did not succeed in doing that. Now, if you look at the whole kind of bank of activities that were going on, RT's but a small part of that picture. But what it did, I think, is indicative of a broader orientation on how how people can be influenced, I suppose. And what RT did was something that I think you could almost consider it like a standard playbook that it's developed over its um, existence, which was essentially to, um, to kind of undermine the process. So in, in the actual elections at the time, RT was very much kind of attempting to undermine the process of the elections, was undermining the key figures, was giving a sort of generically kind of pro-Trump angle maybe, but more focused on the kind of lightweight, humorous critical coverage of Clinton, for example. Mm. Now, after the allegations hit that, you know, Russia had been involved in trying to undermine the elections, RT went into an attempt to kind of mitigate those and did so in a really um, a really RT kind of way, basically. So first of all, it stuck to some really key tropes about this. So first of all, the establishment actors that were making these allegations 
were untrustworthy. So yes, the intelligence agencies say we've done X, Y, and Z, but these are the same intelligence agencies that in the past have given us, you know, faulty information about the reasons to invade Iraq or have undermined South American governments uh, for their own ends, etc., etc. So these historic crimes of the key actors were brought up as evidence that the contemporary allegations they were making couldn't be trusted. Um, they also kind of inferred that there were ulterior motives for blaming Russia for this, for example, to take attention away from the fundamentally corrupt democratic system in the US, um, gerrymandering, for example, voter suppression. RT also kept reiterating that there was no good evidence to substantiate these allegations against Russia. And of course, these allegations are quite hard to prove, certainly with any sort of intelligence that would be in the public arena. Mm -hmm. And so that's an easy one. Like I said earlier, RT loves to draw questions without necessarily providing an alternative explanation. That's a super easy way to do that. Um, it also engaged in this kind of mirroring technique, which RT does a lot that, you know, you may say this about Russia, but actually the US is, is worse. Um, and finally, it drew up a whole raft of prior genuine conspiracies, proven conspiracies, to just um, insinuate that this was just the latest in a long line of conspiracies against Russia. Yeah. Have you got any thoughts on how Russia today's reporting influences other media reporting? So what I noticed during the 2016 election, a lot of Russia Today um, talking points ended up being repeated by Breitbart or by Infowars um, or even David Icke. Yeah. <laughs> and do you think, so the reason I suppose it's maybe difficult to prove how influential Russia Today was in the election is because maybe people are not looking at how it influenced other media that people are engaging with because certainly on the right things like Breitbart are very popular and uh, there's so many others but Infowars in particular is incredibly popular I don't know if you have any thoughts on that Yeah you make a really really good point actually because there's a number of reasons why this is kind of an issue so firstly Mm. sites like Breitbart do refer to RT um, and what is more, any there's been research to show that any sort of right-wing news outlet is much more likely to um, propagate a false mm. story than a left-wing um, outlet is in the US, this, this research is based. Um, but also that its audiences are much more likely to believe that too. Mm. So it does create, I guess, a cascade effect when you think about it that way. Um, yeah. But beyond that kind of right-wing media ecosystem in which RT, I think, does feature fairly heavily, you also have something which is basically a result of the way the contemporary um, media economy works, um, whereby journalists who are pushed for time will often kind of churn through content that over relies on RT and we've seen this even just in the in the British standard tabloid press when it comes to things like press releases about um, Russian weaponry um, mm. they basically kind of regurgitate RT coverage um, and there's research that's shown that you know the information provided in short stories about that just goes back to RT and nowhere else so it does it can have that kind of cascade effect on multiple media outlets absolutely 
Yeah, definitely. One thing I'd add, actually, I've noticed even far left media in the UK, particularly far left media who are supportive of Jeremy Corbyn, <laughs> um, did also push some RT talking points. And in fact, there was a whole, when Jeremy Corbyn was up for election, there was a whole sort of weird little story that MI5 was secretly trying to overthrow Jeremy Corbyn and make sure he never gets elected. And that got very popular in sort of left wing circles. And I know RT certainly picked up on that. Yeah, definitely. Um, there's also, I think, in certain developing countries, Trees, there's a tendency mm. to use RT in that same kind of journalism source way as yeah. well. So it, it can expand its coverage in that way. So RT appears to thrive on conspiracy theories. <laughs> that sounds kind of obvious now, but RT appears to thrive on conspiracy theories born out of unexpected events. The scripple poisoning provided fertile ground for many conspiracy theories that would shift the blame away from the Russian government who sanctioned the attempted murder. Can you talk to us about this period on RT? Yeah, this was a really, really interesting time on RT because ultimately the network itself became a big mm. part of the story later on after the suspects had been um, identified. So... Um, the funny thing was, you know, when, when the news first broke, there was a bit of a silence on Russian domestic television mm, for a few mm. days, essentially while the party line was worked out. RT reported it um, quicker than that. You know, it did it did give reports quite soon after um, the Skripals were found. But what it was reporting was not the case so much as the media coverage of the case. And this is super interesting, and it will give you an insight into how RT often operates, Um is that if there's something um, unexpected, and if there isn't a lot of genuine information about it, then what better to report than the hysterical Western media reaction and the Russophobia that underlines mm. it? And that's exactly mm. what RT did. So it said, you know, we don't have much information about what's going on at the moment. Nonetheless, the West has rushed to judgment. So um, this was basically how all that coverage um, started off. And then... As this event unfolded, more and more things happened, more and more information came out about it, RT responded to each um, individual development, essentially with its well-worn strategy. So this was um, question the sources of authority, report them, of course, but you know, question um, what's going on behind that information, um, create alternative or platform alternative explanations whatever they are, wherever they come from, whether mm. or not they're coherent with one another. Crucially, they were doing that by reporting the claims of external figures. And this is really important for, for understanding how RT engages with conspiracy theories and still manages to err on the right side of media regulation at the moment, yeah. is that it will, you know, a, a Russian politician, for example, will make a ludicrous allegation, which then RT can completely faithfully report as being a comment of that politician. And they also do that, you know, not only with Russian um, government figures, who, by the way, you know, are very happy to give those sound bites, but also with these kind of conspiratorial bloggers um, and commentators, this whole ecosphere of, of conspiratorial commentary, basically. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of what they did throughout the affair. Yeah, they did that also with people like um, uh, Craig Murray, who was a former diplomat, and Annie Mashon, who was a former MI5 officer. They they make made regular appearances on Russia Today around that time. Yeah, they absolutely did. They were two of the kind of main um, commentators on the affair. Mm. Um, a guy called Charles Shoebridge as well, who'd previously been with the police, I think. Um, and because um, these people had those kind of credentials, Mashon as a former um, whistleblower, um, mm. you know, they they 
precisely the right people to quote, to give credibility to RT's narratives of the event, but especially to draw into question the establishment narratives about that, I would say. Mm. So the interesting thing with the Skripal case was that once these suspects had been identified um, uh, and named on the British side, then suddenly there was a kind of a rush to deal with this on the Russian side. Um, Putin essentially said, you know, we've identified these people and they're the private citizens um, and essentially suggested that they might want to talk to the media, which within 24 hours they then did, um, speaking to RT. And ostensibly this was because um, the editor-in-chief of the network had put a call out on social media, which they had seen independently and contacted mm. her independently <laughs> to have a little chat about what they'd yeah. be doing in Salisbury. And, you know, they came on the network for this interview in which they explained very clearly and happily that they were nothing more than nutritional supplement salesmen who'd come to the UK on a little jolly yeah. and got caught up in this crazy global story. Um, and there was so much backlash from this interview. I guess RT presented it as being a kind of an exclusive that they'd been lucky enough yeah. to score. Now, obviously, <laughs> to anyone, yeah. that seems a little bit implausible. But then with the claims these guys were making, that they'd come to Salisbury for a couple of days to see the the, the spire of Salisbury Cathedral, it. Yeah. Um, it just it just didn't go down well at all. Um, yeah. And we did some research at the time that w- was really indicative of just how badly that failed. And audiences of both the English language version and the Russian language version of that video were just completely unconvinced. And for some of them, it essentially changed their view from believing that, okay, yeah, maybe there are some holes in this account. Maybe the British side's not telling us the whole truth. Mm, mm. It completely changed that around to clearly the Russian side's got something to do with this, you know. Yeah. Yeah. And I thought that was very interesting how, you know, how badly um, an attempt to manage an un expected situation can really backfire in this environment where we have these very instantaneous responses to Mm. um, media phenomena i guess yeah yeah it's probably hubris isn't it i think sometimes people think um when they're in a situation when they're bending the truth so much they think they can get away with anything and i think they just went that one step too far there was a committed conspiracy theorist i used to be friends with and 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 even he was skeptical of that interview um <laughs> i mean for good reason there was yeah you, it's, it's the kind of thing you couldn't really make it up you know and if you staged right. it in a film or tv show you'd think you know that's where it went down it went downhill at series three it became yeah. implausible yeah. it's that you know it's that kind of scenario and then after that rt ended up having to really kind of bail water out of a, a sinking ship essentially and it kind of went completely the other way and and half of its kind of coverage after that was basically trying to play off of the idea that this was you know deliberately humorous trolling or something you know mm, so mm. <laughs> it, it, it was just it was a sight that was a sight yeah. to behold it really was yeah well the only good thing came out is those guys will never be able to work as assassins again so <laughs> true <laughs> They're very well known, world's most famous assassins, but there we go. 
So we mentioned Russia Today and COVID-19 a little bit earlier, but um, can you talk to us about sort of Russia Today and its response to COVID-19, which has sort of become a very interesting topic on that channel? Yeah, it is an interesting one. And um, again, it kind of depends on which part of RT's output you're looking at. And I guess Mm. I probably should have made this clearer earlier, but, you know, RT's content is very varied. It does a lot of different Mm. things. Some of it's very high quality investigative journalism. Some of it isn't Mm. and the place where you saw the most interesting and i guess worrisome coverage of covid19 was in um the op-eds basically and this throughout the whole debacle i don't know what what we're calling covid19 now that's a good question actually (laughs) what would you call it now oh my goodness um world changing craziness i don't know (laughs) (laughs) well throughout all of it anyway um rt's op-eds have been you know, really very interesting. So we've had this, a a huge chunk of them, I think, have been questioning the establishment line and really pushing the kind of individual civil liberties line. So looking at any restrictions as some kind of infringement on personal rights um, and questioning, you know, what are the what are the real reasons behind it, essentially. Mm, mm. And there's some really quite quite out there content i would say on those op-eds which was even you know they even managed to link um the last u.s presidential elections with covid as all being part of some grand nefarious master plan which is you know the absolute pinnacle of conspiracy theorizing really Mm. but a lot of it does play on those kind of emotional uh, ideas that people have about feeling that the establishment is forcing them to do things that they don't want to do, that they don't trust the reasons why they're being told that this is necessary as well. Mm. Um, And a lot of it would call into question those key institutions that are providing the information and really playing up on on people's mistrust about those core institutions, about the medical profession, about the politicians that are pushing this as well. Yeah, definitely. I mean, that image I showed you earlier, it it was a a screen grab of a tweet from RT at the very early days of COVID um, on the 22nd of March. And it says, hashtag coronavirus, is it possible to take too much advice from experts? And then the image has coronavirus crisis. Should we be more sceptical? You know, it's It's absolute classic RT territory, isn't Mm. it? You know, question Mm. more, question more about the experts, about the information you're being given. Mm. And it is worrisome because obviously there's nothing wrong with taking a questioning attitude towards authority. Uh, In fact, that's often a very, very good thing to do. But when that's all you were doing, when you can't offer anything more, anything more productive, Mm. and when that Mm. questioning doesn't lead anywhere, then I think that's when it's really quite destructive of, you know, social will, of collective action. And it has these terrible implications as well, you know. I think it's Mm. it is a real worry. Yeah, no, definitely. It is indeed. Especially as is endangering lives still now, you know, people are still not taking wanting to take the vaccine because of misinformation, whether it's from RT or various other online sources, it's dangerous. It is dangerous. And I think that's the other thing that RT does um which is interesting is we've got all this crazy Mm. stuff coming through in the op eds. Um but then we have some pretty standard reporting that talks actually, you know, in a quite a measured sense about what's going on, about the kind of the the figures, um, you know, infection rates, that kind of thing, about the challenges that COVID-19 is posing to different governments. And so, you know, that in a way really makes the op-eds seem almost more credible because they're, it's as if they're coming from an outlet that does care about the facts and that is reporting mm, all mm. angles on it. So 
I, I think that's part of the bigger picture there that we can't really we shouldn't forget. Yeah, definitely. Can you also talk to us a little bit about RT during the 2020 presidential elections? Because that was also an interesting time, wasn't it? Yeah, that was an interesting one. Um, and again, we see a lot of parallels with what had happened before in the election coverage. Mm. Again, this this idea that authority must be questioned. And I think the um, one of the key things that came up in a lot of the programmes was just the fundamental um, issues behind that democratic democratic process. So it drew into question whether or not the elections were even democratically legitimate. So mm. throughout the whole um, campaign period, there were scores of programs dedicated to issues with the American electoral system, for example, with the very real issues of gerrymandering, um, of voter suppression, etc. Um, these were covered absolutely at length. But then this was combined with a really strong attempt to undermine several of the key players, especially when we look at the Biden camp. So there were stories intended to undermine Biden, um, both personally and both on account of his son, Hunter Biden. There was this um, kind of crazy laptop conspiracy theory that was, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, I mean, you know, that hit the, the, the mainstream press. And so RT was just feeding into that. This has been said. That has been said. But then what you can do is take a small story like that and then pump out multiple stories about singular elements of it that increase its um, prevalence in the media space. So, you know, whole articles dedicated to one small comment about a bigger story. And if you do that with five or six separate comments, then it, it seems as if this is a massive story, a massive issue. And that's something that happened a lot. So I guess... Um, that was one of the key tactics used really to undermine the, the, the Democrat camp, I think. And then there were broader stories that sought to undermine the Democrats as a whole. So there was report, reporting of conspiracy theories about them, um, about nefarious links between various members of the Democrat establishment, about the idea that they were in league with Hollywood um, to promote a, a crazy woke agenda. They oh, were yes, that comes up. Yeah. That came so often, you know, um, uh, Gina Carano was cancelled um, mm. because of her political beliefs, for example, that, that aired on RT. And there were a lot of those so-and-so celebrities being cancelled for their comments. Um, the idea that this is kind of state intervention into the very um, nuts and bolts of, of human life, I guess, um, plus ideas that the media is in league with the Democrats, that they're only pr mm. promoting stories that make the Democrats look good, whereas they're hypercritical of Trump and his camp. Um, that came up a lot as well. Um, and it was very much, I mean, it even went down into the idea that the White House itself as a political institution was attempting to undermine Trump as well. The idea that there was internal coups happening on a daily mm. basis that he was mm. battling against. And it was an amazing way of trying to make the incumbent look like the underdog and again, we see all these familiar tropes about, you know, the crooked CIA was working against Trump. Yeah, the deep state. The deep yeah. state, a huge <laughs> theme. I can't believe we've not mentioned the deep state up to this point. But yeah, absolutely. The deep mm. state being against Trump was a huge part of that um, election coverage for sure. Um, and, and like we were talking about earlier, there are some words, some terms that once you use them, 
they bring in a whole raft of subconscious allegations that you then don't have to explicitly articulate. And deep state yeah. is right at the top of that list. Oh, yeah. And that's a popular idea. It's been a popular idea on the far left for a long time. And it's where the far right and the far left kind of come together and have a barbecue. Absolutely. A deep state, man, yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. It really is. It really is. And that's, you know, mm. credit where it's due. RT is really good at riding those waves of popular mm. thought. You know, mm. this is not something that RT's created. And I think that's a massive misconception about them, that they're kind of creating these social divisions. Um, they're not at all. They are riding that wave. And when you think about it in terms of what media organizations do well, if they've got a bottom line to meet, you know, they've got a market to court. Well, OK, congratulations, RT. That's what you're good at. And that is absolutely what they're good at. Yeah. To summarise, so it seems obvious that the that Russia today, it's part of the sort of Kremlin strategy. It basically wants to sow seeds of mistrust and doubt within its sort of target audience, which being, you know, is RT America, it's the Americans, if it's RT Britain, it's Britain and RT France, it's France and so on. Is that would that be a fair assessment? Yeah, I think it's definitely to to raise more and more questions about what we think we know to be true essentially mm. for those audiences yeah so what can be done about rt spreading conspiracy theories and falsehoods um, which appear to be designed to undermine the west and it and russia's perceived enemies <laughs> i mean this is a very very tricky question and there isn't mm. one answer to it because as i said before it's part of this whole broad ecosystem mm. in which rt is essentially just riding the crest of a, a way far bigger than itself and what that means is that the answer to your question is not an answer so much about rt mm. it's an answer about all of that bigger background stuff that allows rt to do what it does so the first thing is rt isn't creating these social schisms RT is capitalizing on them. So at the very, and this may be a naive thing to say, but at the very priority level, we need to be thinking about addressing those root concerns. If gerrymandering in the US weren't an issue, RT couldn't capitalize off of it. For example, if voter suppression weren't an issue, RT couldn't capitalize off of it. Mm -hmm. So a big part of this you can think of as getting our own houses in order, removing that ammunition from RT in the first place and ensuring that our societies work in as equitable way as possible. Yeah. As I said, that might sound naive as a first step, right? Well, I think it's fair. I mean, on a previous podcast, just reflecting on 9-11, I, I was saying I felt that actually corrupt politicians are probably more dangerous to society than terrorists are these days because it gives that ammunition to people like Russia today and so on yeah, it really to undermine does. our trust in, in the government. I mean, I think in the UK, um, faith and trust in the government's probably at an all-time low unless you really love them but <laughs> yeah i know i think you're absolutely right mm. and i think unless we deal with that root cause of the problem then we're always going to be playing catch-up when we do anything about rt or any other of the media outlets that does essentially what mm. rt is doing albeit not with a kind of state-based rationale for that yeah how is education equipping people for conspiracy theories and online cultures today because uh, i'll make one personal observation being a former student fun enough my um, i say former student my, you know long time ago but what got me out of conspiracy theories was actually doing my dissertation at university it really helped me but i've noticed the opposite effect on other people some people i know some people who got first who 
retweet all sorts of nonsense today and they seem there seems to be a disconnect between what you do in education and what you do in your real life and i've noticed that with a lot of people but obviously that's anecdotal there's no science to back that up but i've noticed that and i and i was wondering what's going on in education today that helps us combat this problem well you've actually touched on something for which there is a bit of interesting research actually Ooh. so hey. um conspiracy theories tend to believe mm. tend to be believed more by people yeah. who overestimate their critical thinking ability. So people who do critically think, think critically, um, but who overestimate their ability to do that. So essentially, Mm. we're talking about people who do the research themselves, but only kind of a bit of it, and that they Mm. end up reading things that reinforce those preconceptions that they might have. So actually, education does have a big role to play, but it has to be done very well, and it has to be done very much from an entry level. So this is like a wholesale change and how we think about teaching critical thinking, which actually um, up until very recently wasn't taught in and of itself, certainly in the British education system, um, you know, prior to undergraduate level, for example, which obviously cuts out a whole load of people. So it's absolutely necessary that we have critical thinking skills taught from a very early age, I think. But also it's really important that we have some sort of critical thinking resources or, or um, learning facilities available for older groups as well. Because one of the key um, demographics in which a lot of these um, conspiracy theories do spread is in older generations who grew up when sources that you might consult the most generally did have fail-safe. So the traditional print press, for example, or a a constrained um, television media environment. That's not the case now. And that generation hasn't quite caught up with how Mm. this media environment has changed the reliability of sources. So I think education is very, very important all along the spectrum, as long as it doesn't then shift the... um, the onus on combating fake news and conspiracy theories to the individual, because that's not something that an individual really can do. Mm. Um, Mm. And that, I guess, leads me on to my third recommendation, is that we think very seriously about how we do media regulation. So I told you how um, RT has kind of changed its tactics over time, and that's partly in response to how Ofcom has regulated its content in the UK, for example. In France as well, RT France is actually uh, much less objectionable than RT International in a lot of ways, and that's because of intense scrutiny um, that the Macron administration has had on RT since the very start. So we Mm. do know that they adapt their content based on the regulatory environment, um, and I think that's quite important then to see, OK, well, how do we expand regulation in such a way that it is reliable for not just traditional media, but also online media um, without then looking like a uh, establishment media conspiracy? And there are a few ideas of how you might do this, for example, um, using a kind of um, social media corporation levy to fund um, things like uh, education, critical, critical thinking education, um, as well as holding um, different networks responsible for the kind of content that's being um, platformed on them. And this is something that actually has been going through the UK Parliament very recently. Um, we're not kind of clear where that's going to end up just yet. Um, but it is something that, you know, increased regulation is being looked into, um, especially in terms of placing an obligation onto media platforms for the kind of content that they allow to be spread. So, yeah, 
making them it's beyond a code of conduct but essentially um making them responsible for the consequences of the information that's spread on those networks yeah i think that's very important and i suppose they're also what what and this is might be going a bit off topic as well there's something interesting as well about like um social media as a whole now the individual has the reach of broadcast media should there be consequences for what you tweet i don't know I don't know. It's a tricky one, isn't it? I mean, mm. I, I'm a little bit loath to put too much focus on the individual because, I, to me, it's more about how that information evolves or how that kind of claim evolves into something else. You know, if we attempt to restrict free speech at the source, I think that's quite dangerous. But it's kind of getting the balance right then between something that's an overt allegation that can be can be regulated and something that's just chatter, which I think we do have to kind of stay away from. You know, we we should, as developed societies, be able to evolve an ecosystem in which rubbish can be said and rubbish can be ignored without it turning into this whole massively um, social, socially detrimental process, I think. Thank you. Well, look, um, my final question is, where can listeners find out more about you and your work? If listeners would like to find out more about the topics of this interview, they can check out the book, which is called Russia Today and Conspiracy Theory, People, Power and Politics on RT. It's out with Routledge now um, and it's available for purchase online. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for joining us. I've really enjoyed the chat. Thank you. Thanks very much for inviting me. Thanks for listening. This is Secrets and Spies.